Hey, good morning and welcome to the Women in Manufacturing podcast. My name's Fran Brunel. I'm the president of Accelerated Manufacturing Brokers, Inc., a company that specializes in lower middle market manufacturing mergers and acquisitions nationally. And I'm your host for today's show. So today we are super excited to have Ashley Walters with us. Ashley is the president of Onyx, an employee-owned business operating for over 55 years in Erie, Pennsylvania. Onyx designs, services, and manufactures high-temperature industrial furnaces. Today, Onyx's mission is to make things better, empower employees, have happy clients, and thriving communities. I love how you add the communities into everything you do. That's fabulous. Ashley holds a BS in chemical engineering, and she's the author of Leading with Grit and Grace, a journey of organizational culture change, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Um, Ashley regularly shares her story with other leaders, encouraging them to make things better by improving processes and creating a people-centric organizational culture. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Fran. I'm excited to be here today. We're excited to have you here. So introduce the listening audience to Onyx. Tell us what you do and why you do it. Okay, so Onyx started, as you mentioned, more than 50 years ago here in Erie, Pennsylvania. Two gentlemen named Jack Gordon and Alex Moorhauser were the gentlemen that started the company, and we we distributed refractory products at the time. But we've gone on to grow and expand in our markets, and now we're just truly a one-stop shop for your industrial furnace needs. We maintain them as well as build them, Um, and we're just super excited to be playing a part in this revitalization of American manufacturing. Fabulous. So you, before you became the president of this company, you were the general manager, I think back in 2013. Tell us um, what the company culture was like as you took over as GM. Yeah, so my father-in-law owned the company. He was the majority shareholder at the time, and he had put into place a CFO who had a very command and control leadership style. And um, I guess that's what we felt like the company needed at the time as we were growing, but it really got away from those family-centric values that we had as a company prior to that. And so in 2013, I found that that command and control style just simply wasn't working for our family-owned company. And so I set out to make it a more people-centric culture. Um, And I did that through using a lot of lean principles. Really had to get some of those conversations started again um, in a command and control style that the alpha is telling everybody else every step to make, right? But I didn't know every step that people needed to be making. I didn't understand like the entire organization and everything that was going on in the background. So I had to have those conversations with people, even those difficult conversations, right? But I made them kind of easy. What I said was, what frustrates you or what takes up most of your time? And Ah. it was those conversations that started showing us where the waste in the system was. Yeah. You know, you, you, you want to know what works and what doesn't work. Ask the people doing it, which is not so not the old style of manufacturing, right? The command and control thing. And what I find interesting um, in this conversation is you're connecting 
um, having a people-centric culture to lean manufacturing, which is very interesting. And I think old timers in the industry wouldn't connect the dots between those two things, but yet you do. Yeah, so, so once we start asking those questions, kind of uh, if you've ever heard of Two Second Lean by Paul Akers, his question is, what bugs you? And his theory is that it, sometimes it's just a little thing that can be fixed in two seconds. But those um, kind of led us to like a deeper dive on what's going on. So once we got the teams talking, then we could get the teams together and get them talking even more. And we did that through value stream mapping. So sitting there with the entire team from start to finish in a process and really talking about what worked well and what didn't work well, um, got the cross collaboration started because during that command and control season of our company, it was also very siloed. No department knew what any other department was doing. So not only did we have to repair that trust and rapport between leadership and the front lines, but we had to repair it between departments as well. Mm -hmm. So value stream mapping was a great way to do that. And then I always say lean is a journey. Um, you're never done. So the next step that we took was really teaching problem solving skills. Okay, now we've ferreted out problems. Now the leadership team has helped us, you know, fix the problems we've ferreted out. Now it's your turn. Now let's teach you how to solve problems so you can feel more in control of your own processes. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, people love to solve problems, right? They want to have autonomy in their work. Yeah. Um, and so I, as I grew as a leader, I realized that people weren't looking to me to solve all their problems. Sometimes they just wanted to tell me about it and kind of get it off their chest, but they wanted the opportunity to be able to solve it themselves. Mm. So circling back to the silo thing, because I think a lot of companies suffer from that. Did you find that um, in discovering that these silos of, of thought and work existed and they were not communicating with each other, is part of the reason for that, that people were afraid to share and communicate because they were protecting their position, that they were afraid that, um, you know, they would be replaced? I think it was more of a fear of making mistakes. Ah, okay. They were belittled and berated when they voiced an opinion or made a mistake or uh, if the sales numbers didn't come in like they were supposed to or the margin numbers didn't come in like they were supposed to. So I think it was just hiding, right? It was, now, not to say that there wasn't some, so as we did go through the change in the program, there was definitely some of that, I'm not gonna tell you what I'm doing because it's my job security. I'm not gonna teach anybody else how to do it. Um, but at the, at the time it was more, a, a fear. So I talk about it like psychological safety. So I can't tell you to go out and experiment and be innovative and creative if when your experiment fails, which a lot of times they do, right? It's an experiment. Right. Um, they're not usually successful, but we learn from them. But if I berate or belittle you when you're trying to do something new, if I'm not giving you that psychological safety, then you won't try anything. You'll do it once. You might do it twice but you'll stop trying. So it's about creating a safe environment for people to um, experiment and grow and have ideas. Yeah, for sure. So it. I always tell everybody, I'm like, make mistakes. Just don't make the same mistake twice. Right. You have to learn from it. 
um, but it's okay. And we found when I started, you know, we make precast shapes here for the steel industry. And we had a bunch of shapes that had been thrown away in a dumpster. And one of the leaders found them and they said, why are we throwing these away? And they said, well, they're cracking. And they, the, the people making them thought it was their fault that they were cracking. It turned out it was a material issue with one of our vendors. And we needed to go back to the vendor and say, hey, the material's cracking. Something's wrong in your process. You know, help us figure this out. Um, but instead, they were just so fearful, they just hit it. But now what happens yeah. is when a mistake is made, they'll, they'll come straight to somebody and say, this happened. Will you please come with me to the floor and take a look at it with me? Let's work this out together. Let's figure it out. Let's not do this again. So it's just a whole 180 from hiding from us and to admitting to it and, and getting help right away. Much better results. For sure. It feels yeah. better too, right? You're of going course. Feeling like you, you're demoralized, right? You made a mistake yeah. hiding it. Yeah. So I love the idea too of um, teaching the staff how to think, how to, yeah. how to critically think. Um, and again, that is in such contrast to the old style of commands and control. Yeah. So speak a little, I just think that um, manufacturers nationally need to hear this message. So can you speak into, as you start to do this, um, bring lean principles, um, have a safe work environment where it's okay to make mistakes, um, but not the same one twice, to learn from it, um, and then to um, begin to teach people how to think critically. What has that done for your organization? So now it's just, I would tell you, our culture is one of continuous improvement. And even our mission is just to make things better. And that's internally, but externally as well. So I even challenge the teams because a lot of what we do, 75% of what we do as a company is service other people's equipment, other clients' equipment. And so I even say to those teams, like, if you continue to make the same repair over and over, like, stop, let's ask questions. Let's help them figure out what's wrong. We want America manufacturers to be competitive. Let's help them. So we really do feel like it's our job from internal to external uh, to make things better. I would also say, Fran, that, you know, to be agile, like we have to be these days, the leader can't think of everything that everyone needs to do. It's number one, exhausting. And number two, we get it wrong uh, because we're not the ones closest to the work. So right. if you just go to the people, my dad told me this, he was a back tender on a paper machine. And when I got my engineering degree, he said to me, Ashley, that's great, but you don't know much. And I thought, well, that's not very nice, you know, but he said, go to the people who are doing the work and ask them, they already have the solution to the problem you're trying to solve. I have nice. used that entire career. And it's so true. They already know the solution, but nobody's ever bothered to ask them. And they haven't bothered to voice it because it hasn't been well received or they yeah. haven't been respected in their opinion. Um, so it, it starts with leadership though. It absolutely starts with the leadership team respecting the opinions and trusting the people that are closest to the work. Mm. And, you know, so what would you say to an old time manufacturer who um, is listening to this and going, ah, culture doesn't matter. 
Tell us, has it changed your bottom line? Oh, it has changed our bottom line for sure. And I can't tell you what one thing that we've done has changed it, but it's all the things that have changed the culture. Um, and even, you know, going from that command and control to continuous improvement, we saw a change, but going from continuous improvement to employee owned, we saw a change too. So it's just everybody bringing their strengths to work every day and doing the absolute best that they can that just rolls up into this really awesome company. Yeah, I tell you what, I, I yeah, I love what you're saying. We, it, it makes a manufacturing company more valuable as well when it's time to retire, when it's time yeah. to sell. We sold something um, out in California and it was, they were an aerospace component manufacturer and my client was second generation in the industry. And his dad used to make these parts like one-off, right? And so this husband and wife team were all about continual improvement and making that the complete culture. And so the people that worked for them continuously looked at how are we making this and how can we, to fulfill customer requirements, make more of them faster. And they would build these work holding devices um, where they could you know, cut many at a time. And then they kept improving that. And they had such an amazing culture that everyone was involved every day and going, how can we do it better? This, this is fun. like, it was a challenge and it was fun yeah. for them. And let me tell you what, um, they sold at a fabulous price because of that culture that they created. Yes. And it is fun to solve problems. Yeah. I mean, it, it keeps, even though your work can be routine each day, that solving problems pieces is what keeps it like fun and exciting. And you're doing something new and different. Um, I would also say that in the companies that you're working with and, and working to sell, it can't all depend upon the owner because that's a huge risk to the buyer, right? Oh, absolutely. But, but if the owner has instilled this like continuous improvement and the whole team's working together and others can participate in the process if they're leading the process but others are you know doing the work that makes for a much healthier company too and less risky for another buyer absolutely companies that are too dependent on the seller trade at lower multiples of cash flow because it's a risk to a buyer and to an acquisition lender yes. yeah so let's switch gears here for a second tell me about leading with grit and grace so um, I always jokingly say I'm an engineer and by trade, we don't normally write. Like It's not something that we do well or, or very well understood, right? Um, but during the middle of the pandemic, my marketing coordinator said to me, Ashley, you need to write your story for others that are out there. Um, she said, you've led through an internal crisis, which was our, you know, our turnaround, but now I've led through COVID as well. And so um, 
I said, you know, I don't write. And she said, but you do. I've been doing some LinkedIn articles and then been getting some really good feedback, you know, thinking differently. And uh, so I set out to write the book. I had no idea all the steps included in writing a book. So I set myself a very tight timeline of December when I started in September, but I did get it written. <laughs> it was published on December 8th. And it's just all wow, about- you did it in that time frame. I did. <laughs> wow, you go girl. <laughs> To be fair, it was COVID. We were all locked down. Like you weren't traveling, you know, the kids weren't playing sports. I mean, I had a little extra time in my day that I don't normally have. Um, but it was actually really nice to just sit and, and think through what steps did I take uh, to make this happen and what, what things were successful and then what things weren't, right? Because yeah. the things that aren't successful are just as important too, right? Set that goal, but if it's not going the way that you want, abandon it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. try again but yeah so it's been super well received um it's a really quick read just a couple hours and it's really just a playbook and I find that people resonate with different nuggets of it it's almost like you you read the thing that you need in that moment in life um, yeah yeah so for manufacturers this would tell the story of how you transitioned the culture of this company Yes, it does. It gives it from start to finish, from command and control to being an ESOP and kind of all the tools that we used in between. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. So I know that you're a believer in setting wildly <laughs> important goals. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when we started the turnaround, we didn't have any performance reviews. And so that was one of the first things we implemented was, you know, goal setting. And we did the traditional cascade, like set the goals at the top, cascade it through the whole organization. And about the time I got done writing goals for the whole organization, the world changed. And so it was just a, this is just a frustrating process. And yeah. um, since we came into 2018, um, my husband and I were purchasing the business from his father. And I was just like, I can't stand performance reviews. They are rear view looking uh, you're dinging people for mistakes or things that didn't get accomplished, but, but the world's changed since you wrote the goals a year ago. I said, it just doesn't make any sense to me. A waste of time. And as an engineer, I went through and I actually calculated the cost to the company of doing the performance reviews and decided if there was an ROI on it. And I decided there wasn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So I found this wildly important goal and, um, it really is just picking a priority. And so it talks about like priority was never meant to be pluralized. It is a priority, singular. And it really just picking that one goal for us for the year helped us just make good decisions. If we can only do this one thing better, this is the thing that we're gonna do and being very focused and intentional. And what I found was, yes, there's, thousands of good ideas out there, but you've just got to pick the one that's really going to move the needle. And when you pick one and you get everybody focused against it, then you actually do move the needle. When you have hundreds of goals, you don't, you're not moving a needle. Nobody's focused. It's not intentional. Mm -hmm. So each year we've picked a wildly important goal uh, since 2018. And it just has, it has calmed the organization down and the wildly important goal doesn't change throughout the year, right? It remains wildly important. Whereas if you get too far into the weeds and you're trying to write that roadmap, um, the market conditions change on you, which changes. Yeah. So that's, I've never heard that, like just do one goal a year. 
um, that kind of contradicts a lot of what is out there in the business world. If you can share with us, not necessarily this year, but what was a past goal? Yeah, so um, 2018 started out with revenue growth. We just had to be focused on revenue. Mm -hmm. Um, And 2019 was debt reduction. Uh, 2020 was succession planning. Um, And this year was the customer experience, both internal and external. And what I found is we never lost sight of the revenue growth. We just got really good at it, right? Because it was right. And so then same thing with debt reduction. Um, So we just continue to build on each of those. But by being focused and moving that needle on one, then we are able to build on the others and just continue. Very interesting. You know, you think about how many businesses fail within the first few years. And if they focused on the things and in the order that you just said, it would <laughs> yeah. be a lot fewer of them failing, right? Yeah. So um, one of the years was, um, um, you know, transitioning the company and you're now an employee-owned company. So what led to that decision? How hard was it to do that? Speak into that a little bit, because I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear it. Yeah. So Drew and I were second generation family owners. We purchased the business from his father. And when we were purchasing the business, it is harder than one would think sometimes to transition between two generations in a family. And um, so there's plenty of methods out there, but none of them were worked very well for what we were trying to do. Um, so because it took us so long to make that transition and kind of find that path for us, Drew and I knew we wanted to be very thoughtful about our transition one day. Mm-hmm. And um, we have two boys and, you know, third, third generation businesses, as you know, aren't usually wildly successful. They're only 13% successful. And so we wanted to be even more cautious about how we transitioned um, just because this this company was in this community long before Drew and I, and we wanted to make sure it was in this community long after Drew and I. And so um, we didn't want the employees to rely on our family solely. Um, so when I was introduced to the concept of an ESOP, I thought this really speaks to what we were trying to do, right? We're continuously improving. We have problem solvers. These guys now can act like owners of a company because they know how to make the good sound business decisions. And so um, we made that we went ahead and made the transition to an ESOP just two short years after we had purchased the business. But an ESOP is a long-term transition plan. It's you know, 10 years in the making uh, in some cases. And so we knew that we wanted to reward the people that were coming to work every day and making this possible um, and and not to just be solely reliant on our family in the future. That was a true part of the community. Do you think, um, had you not gone through this process of changing the culture, do you think the transition to an ESOP would be as successful as it has been? I think when you look at ESOP companies, there's a lot to be said about their cultures. Um, And it's usually that they're very like people-centric cultures. 
Um, and, you know, they're, like I said, they're teaching people about the game of business. A lot of times we don't, as business owners, we don't share the financials. We don't tell people what the revenue is or how the costs are made up. We don't really educate them on the cost of uh, a safety incident and workers' comp insurance. You know, it's not things you talk about um, traditionally. But Nor is it things they learn in college, in business no. school. No. It's amazing to me how you have people coming to you for employment with an MBA and they, it, it, it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? The equivalent of what a high school education used to be because yeah. they, they don't know the components of a financial statement. How did you, how did you get an MBA? Yeah. And we even relate it back to like to your household budget, start really high with the business, business versus household budget, and just try to draw parallels for them. And, um, you know, when we're purchasing a new piece of capital equipment, there's a lot of people that think as employee owners, they get a vote, but they don't. It's like you owning stock in Apple. Nobody right. calls to ask you if they're allowed to do this new R&D project, right? Mm -hmm. um, same thing here. There's no vote. It's still the management team that's making those decisions. But what we are doing is we're sharing with them. Okay, we're going to spend $50,000 on this piece of machinery. It's a capital spend. It's not affecting your value as, a, as an employee owner, except that it will make your value as an employee owner greater when we when we can now do $500,000 worth of revenue with this same $50,000 piece of equipment, right? Yeah. And so just really tying that in for them and making sure they understand why the decision was made uh, and how you're, you know, you're growing the company, mm -hmm. yeah. growing their value. Yeah. So, hey, we are starting to run out of time. I really wish we weren't. <laughs> this has been an absolute delight. So if uh, our listening audience wants to learn more about Onyx and your company's services, how should they best reach out to you? Yeah. So um, please jump out on the website. It's onyxinc.com and there's a contact us page. So we'd love to hear from you. Ashley, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your insights on com company culture. Um, I know that manufacturers all over the nation need to hear this, and we appreciate your openness and transparency. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always fun to tell our story. A delight. Hey, so listen, if you're a woman in manufacturing or in an industry servicing the manufacturing community and you'd like to be on the show, please reach out to me. Uh, LinkedIn, Francis Brunel, or just call my office, 908-387-1000. I would also like to encourage our listening audience to visit whampodcast.com, where you can hear all of our shows and other shows brought to you by the Jacket Media Company. Thanks for listening and have a great day, everybody. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.